Ready for action. I can't tell you how many times those words have been said in our home. And if you spent much time with a two to five year old over the last 10 years, you've probably heard, ready for action, rider, sir, quite a bit yourself. If you don't know, it's one of the catchphrases from the biggest show for kids over the last decade, the Paw Patrol, where a team of talking puppies are led by a 10 year old boy named Ryder. And whenever there's a paw problem around Adventure Bay, Ryder and his team of pups will come and save the day. And since you can't have children's programming without talking toys in your house, several of the toys in our home regularly say the line, ready for action, Ryder, sir, and Paw Patrol reporting for duty. So we hear it a lot. What about you? What's the last time you had the thought, I'm ready for action, reporting for duty? As you got out of bed this morning, or as you, you stepped into this building filled with people this morning, did you think, ready for action, reporting for duty? What about when you get out of bed tomorrow morning and every day this week? As you step into a world filled with other people, will you be ready for action? What does that mean for the Christian? Well, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. You can find it very near the end of your Bible, specifically on page 232 in the second half of the Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a land without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, use this time together to make us ready for action, sober-minded, with our eyes fixed on Christ. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, in one sense... You never want to start your your daily Bible reading or your sermon text with a verse that begins with, therefore. You can't make it past the first word without having to stop it and look back over what came before to determine what the therefore is there for. And yet, in another sense, it's actually quite helpful when your, your passage for your daily Bible reading or for a sermon text like this, when it begins with the reminder to do just that. You should always start your reading by establishing the context of the passage being studied. As we arrive at the middle of chapter 1 of Peter's letter, Peter is about to issue the first three commands of the letter. 
And before he does so, he wants to ensure that we understand these commands about holy living. He wants to make sure that we understand the commands flow out of the grace that we have already received. That's what he's been focusing on and celebrating in the preceding 12 verses that we looked at last week. Grace. The grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Grace that the prophets who prophesied in the Old Testament longed for. Grace at which the angels marvel. The saving grace of salvation that has been secured by the coming of Christ. The sustaining grace of steadfastness to endure suffering here and now. And the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, poured out at Pentecost. Saving grace, sustaining grace, sanctifying grace. Given that grace that is ours in Christ, how then should we live? That's what the therefore is answering. Your eternal inheritance is already unalterably secured through faith. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning upon the return of Christ, when the inheritance is granted. Uh, Notice that that, that Peter doesn't merely say, set your hope fully on Christ's return. That's certainly included in the exhortation, but it's more than just set your hope on Christ's return. Nor does he merely say, set your hope fully on grace. Set it fully on grace over against works that you do, over against self-sufficiency. That's certainly included in the exhortation, but there's more. He, He brings both ideas together, saying, set your hope fully on the grace that is coming for you, on the gracious gift that is coming. Set your sights on that. In the midst of the the various trials by which you have been grieved, verse 6, which are testing and thus refining and strengthening your faith, verse 7, lift up your head and, and fully fix your gaze upon the inheritance that is coming. This future orientation It's critical for enduring the sufferings of this temporary earthly pilgrimage and to to endure them, not merely with your faith intact, but with joy. Well, that's what we looked at last week, a future orientation that allows you to suffer with joy. Well, this week, we also see that this this future orientation is critical for, for shedding light on how we spend our time here and now while we wait. We're not merely pilgrims journeying through, our etern- to, through this world to our eternal home. No, we are pilgrim priests. We are God's agents of reconciliation, commissioned to tell others to come and join us on this journey and to come alongside those who do. We see this in the two uh, participial phrases that begin verse 13. Peter begins his explanation of what is involved. What's involved in setting your hope fully on the grace that is to come? Well, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. You might be familiar with the more literal translation of that first phrase in the King James. It's, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up, prepare the loins of your mind. To gird up your loins, it's a figure of speech that's drawn from the the practice of men dressed in in long robes, who in order to to run, they need to to gather up that robe from around their feet with their hands and to tuck it in their belt around their waist, to free up their legs to run. Gird up your loins. It's similar to to our figure of speech, roll up your sleeves, right? 
Peter's saying, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Remove unnecessary encumbrances from your thinking so that you are then ready for action. Being sober-minded. It's the second phrase. Now, this obviously, metaphorically, is referring to, to more than just the avoidance of intoxication, though it certainly includes that, right? Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. No, but the call for sober-mindedness goes beyond that. It's a call to cut out any practice that produces foggy-headedness, fuzzy thinking. Don't fill your mind with falsehood or filth or excessive fluff dulling your senses, but soberly, with due seriousness, be ready for action and ready your mind for action. Uh, Peter uses the the same word in chapter 5, verse 8, when he writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Why be sober-minded? Why be watchful? Well, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. Our enemies are real. Their their threats are serious. The task set before God's pilgrim priests on the earth is urgent and has eternal significance, so we must be ready with minds prepared and sober. Is that how you think about your Christian calling? There's, There's a close connection between discipleship and discipline. Right? To be a disciple is to discipline yourself in the way of your master. And that begins with disciplining your mind. We're definitely going to spend a lot more time on this aspect of discipleship next week. Disciplining your mind, given what's in the next following passage. But, but for now, before moving to verse 14, I want to consider an illustration that Peter may have in mind himself. I think he does. In bringing together this language of being dressed for action as you await your deliverance, along with the language of exile in the following verses, and of being ransomed with the blood of a lamb, and the quotation of a specific command given to the Exodus generation, I think it's quite possible and quite likely that Peter intends for us to consider the Exodus here. Put yourselves in the shoes of that Exodus generation being called out of Egypt. As the sun goes down on the night of the tenth and horrible plague, each Israelite household kills a lamb. They take some of the blood, they put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house. They then roast the meat and eat the meat in, in a very unusual manner, following the command to eat it with your belt fastened, eat it with your sandals on your feet, eat it with your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. And so throughout the meal and throughout that night, they they remain in a state of readiness, not knowing exactly when the night, in the night, the destroyer will pass over their houses, taking the lives of the firstborn of all other homes, not knowing exactly when in the night Pharaoh will relent and order their exodus. Their hope is fully set on the deliverance that they know is coming. The blood of the lamb has already been spilt on their behalf. And so they wait, sober-minded, ready for action. It's unthinkable that they would be caught unprepared when the moment of the Passover or the moment of the Exodus came. It's unthinkable that they'd give themselves over that night to distractions, the distractions of life in Egypt as they waited, with belt fastened, sandals on their feet, staff in hand. Well, that's to be our posture as well. 
with our hope fully set on the deliverance that we know is coming, with the blood of the Lamb already spilt on our behalf, we wait, sober-minded, ready for action. So walk with your head up and your mind girded up so as to be ready for action. Walk not with your your head down, fixated on either the concerns of this life or the, the pleasures of this world, but with your head up, looking toward the world to come. Walk not with your head down, fixated on yourself. Walk with your head up, looking to the needs of others. Walk with your head up to be ready for action. That's verse 13. And strive to grow up, to be like your Father. That's verses 14 through 17. Strive to grow up to be like your heavenly Father. Of all the gifts uh, that my four-year-old received for Christmas this year, uh, the one that he was most excited about and has most been enjoying is a toiletry bag filled with pretend toiletries. Shaving razor, shaving cream, aftershave lotion, a comb, pretend hair dryer, pretend electric hair trimmer, a little mirror. And most mornings since Christmas, anytime I, I pull out my toiletry bag, start to get ready for the day, he runs to get his bag. He sidles up next to me in the bathroom pretending to do everything that I'm doing. Like father, like son. Every child naturally wants to be like their father. And they strive to that end. That's the way it's supposed to be. How much more should we long to be like our heavenly father and strive to that end? Peter addresses us in verse 14 as obedient children. As obedient children. That's what Christians are. All who have obeyed the call of the gospel to trust in Christ have become children of God, adopted through our union with the one true Son of the Father. If that's you, if the the Father has, quote, caused you to be born again as His child through faith, Well, then as obedient children, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not continue to be pressed into the world's mold. Like my little boy's Play-Doh as it conforms to whatever mold is pressed into. Do not continue to be shaped by the world, to, to be made like the world. Instead, be shaped by and made like the creator of the world. Be conformed to the image of your heavenly Father and His perfect Son. Strive to be what you were made to be, he says. Verse 15, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That command, be holy, the second in our passage, well, that command is found repeatedly in the book of Leviticus. It's actually a good summary that the whole book of Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. As our deliverer who who called us to himself, who who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, as as he is holy, so too we are to be holy. Okay, but what does that mean? What's it mean to be holy like God is holy? Well, in, in many respects, that's what the rest of Peter's letter is going to flesh out. What does it mean to be holy like God? But as we already see in the verses we've already read, 
We've already seen in the passage from Leviticus that, that Ashley just read. Being holy, well, it involves being separated from the world, being called out from what Peter describes as the futile ways, the useless ways of the world. It means being distinct from the world so as to be useful to the world. We can't be useful to the world if we're no different from the world. Be holy, be set apart. Verse 17, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter again refers to the Christians' earthly pilgrimage as a time of exile. Having addressed the letter at the very beginning to the elect exiles dispersed in a world that is not our home. We know that our, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, so we are exiles here on the earth. But notice how Peter begins this command, this sentence, verse 17, if, if you call on him as father, who is also your judge. Well, the, the first question is, do you call on him? Do you regularly call on God in prayer? That's what it means to call on him. See, where there is faith, there will be prayer. Where there is no prayer, there is no faith. Prayer is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. And specifically, prayer to God as Father. Don't just take it for granted that you can address your Creator and your Judge as Father. The Old Testament saints and the first century Jews did not address God as Father. Jesus' practice and teaching on this matter was radical. It was even seen as blasphemous by His enemies. In John chapter 5, verse 18, as they pick up stones to kill Him for having called God His Father. The title, Father, is packed with meaning. It perfectly brings together two of God's roles. God's role as our holy judge and His role as our gracious Redeemer. If you only know God as your holy judge, well, He will seem cold to you. He will seem distant to you. He will seem unapproachable. You will not love Him and call on Him. And conversely, if you only know God as your Savior, your gracious Redeemer, well, He will begin to seem too familiar to you. Too familiar to be all that concerned with how you live day by day. You will not fear Him and worship Him. But you see, Father, the, the, the title Father, it brings together both roles. Holy Judge and Gracious Redeemer. Fearful Disciplinarian and Loving Comforter. Thus bringing together reverence and intimacy. Father. The language of Father is supposed to, to help us to understand this. This mix of reverence and intimacy. But we, in our day, we need to recognize that we live in an, in an unusually, even uniquely degenerate culture that astoundingly has lost sight of the, the beauty and value of fatherhood altogether. Has lost sight of the, the respect and honor that fathers are due. America now has the highest rate of single-parent homes in the world. 
40%, two out of every five children do not live with their birth fathers. And nearly one out of every four do not have a father figure in the home at all. One in every four American children do not have a father. And the fathers that are in the home are marginalized and treated with anything but respect by our cultural elites who claim fathers are not necessary, as men are not necessary. For example, simple illustration quoting from Nancy Piercy. She says, one study analyzed 24 episodes of the Disney Channel's two most popular tween shows featuring families. And the study found that every 3.24 minutes, every three and a quarter minutes, the TV dad acted like a buffoon. About half the time, the children characters, the child character reacted to the dad with expressions of contempt, rolling their eyes, making fun of him, criticizing him, or, or turning and walking away. Watch for this in any of the shows that you consume. Not even just modern shows, but, but shows over the last few decades. You'll see it everywhere. Fathers are marginalized and treated with contempt. I, re- re- I recommend Nancy Piercy's book, uh, The Toxic War on Masculinity, because it's a war on fatherhood. And our civilization will not survive if this is not reversed. Any politician or or candidate for political office this election year, or or social commentator who speaks about the epidemics of poverty, or crime, or suicide, or drug use, or homelessness, or mass shootings, or transgenderism, but who fails to connect all these things together and to connect it with the crisis of fatherhood in our nation, well, that person should not be taken seriously because they are not serious people. The crisis is one of fatherhood. Again, my main point in in mentioning this rot in our culture is that we are supposed to understand the goodness of a strong, authoritative, loving father as we hear God addressed as father, one deserving of respect and obedience. But for those of us raised in our culture, we have unusual obstacles to overcome in this regard, given our culture's war on men and on fatherhood. But focusing in on on this third command of the letter, people who are are new to the Bible are often surprised by the command to fear God, your Father. So we need to to think through that for a moment. You might be tempted to say, isn't the most frequent command in Scripture the command to fear not, to be not afraid? Yes, that is the most frequently repeated command in Scripture. And yet, it's also the case But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10. How do we make sense of this? Well, I think the the best place to begin thinking through this is is Exodus 20.20. It's an easy reference to remember. You can get that firmly in your mind. Think of it as what grants 20.20 vision with regard to fearing the Lord. Exodus 20.20. In Exodus 20.20, God has appeared atop Mount Sinai with fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts, so that even the mountain itself begins to tremble greatly. And the people were afraid. The people trembled. They stood far off from God. And they said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us. We'll listen to you, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Exodus 20.20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Fear not. Be not afraid. It's the most common command in Scripture. For 
God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, may be with you, may be in you, that you may not sin. Well, which is it, Moses? Is it fear not or fear Him that you may not sin? Well, it's, it's both. Oh, so, so apparently from Exodus 20-20, we begin to see clearly that there are two different kinds of the fear of God. One fear of God is sinful, told not to do that, fear not. The other fear of God is righteous. We're commanded to have that. You see, sinful fear shrinks back from God in terror, like those Israelites cowering on the mountain. Righteous fear draws us near to God in reverent worship, like Moses on the mountain. Not shrinking back, but drawing near. But as we think through what what is this righteous fear, notice that the the commanded fear is not entirely disconnected from judgment. Peter says, if you call on him as father, who is also your judge, conduct yourself with fear. What is this righteous fear? Well, well, righteous fear humbly recognizes, it humbly recognizes, and it, it gladly accepts that God is God and you are not. That he is the judge, not you. That you are always answerable to him and he is never answerable to you. That he is radically different from from every God that humans have ever invented with their imagination. He cannot be manipulated to do our bidding. That he cannot be obligated to grant our requests. That we are his servants, he is not our servant. That he is the arbiter of truth, not us. That he is the one who knows what is best for us because he made us. He knows what is good and evil. He knows what is right and wrong. Fearing the Lord means knowing that our intuitions about what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, is often wrong. Our intuitions need to be corrected. To fear the Lord is to trust and obey Him, having tasted that He is good, that He is worthy of all our love and all our worship. He's worthy of our complete devotion. That's what it is to fear the Lord. In loving Him, we strive to grow up to be like Him, to be like our Heavenly Father. And we love Him because He first loved us, as Peter explains. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As you listen to this language and you think about the the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, well, unlike this first generation of Christians, maybe your parents were themselves Christians. So does this apply to you? you? You didn't inherit futile ways of paganism from your parents. Does this still apply to you if that's the case? Well, well, certainly it applies. For one thing, you too, just like these first Christians, well, you were born into a sin-stained world, surrounded all your life by various forms of idolatry. Increasingly so in our culture today. But in Christ, you have been ransomed. That is, you have been liberated. You have been set free from the enslaving power of that worldly influence. You've been set free from all spiritual forces of evil, just like them, even if you were raised in a Christian home. And secondly, being born into a Christian home didn't spare you from being born with your forefather Adam's sin-marred nature. So that you were, quote, by nature deserving of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. 
But in Christ, you have been set free. You've been ransomed both from the penalty of your sin and from the enslaving power of that sin within. So you can be commanded, as in verse 14, be not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance before you were converted. Passions that once controlled you, well, they need no longer control you for the price of your ransom has already been paid. So live as freed up to serve a new master. Live as freed up to serve a new master. That's what being ransomed, redeemed, meant in the ancient world. That's what being ransomed meant both in the, the Greco-Roman culture and the Jewish culture of the first century. It meant having a new master. In the Greco-Roman world, if the ransom price of a slave was paid, well, that ransom price, was, was whether paid by the slave himself or by a benefactor, it was first deposited in a temple of a local god. And only then was it paid out to the temple's treasury to the slave's owner with the understanding that the ownership of the freed slave had now been transferred to the god of that temple. They were owned by that god. They had a new master. And similarly, in the Jewish world, the language of ransom well, it goes back to the Exodus, right? When the Lord ransomed, when the Lord redeemed His people from their slavery to Pharaoh, well, they became the Lord's servants. As the Lord commanded Moses to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 8, verse 1, Let my people go, that they may serve me, and no longer serve you. And just as Pharaoh's claim and power over those Israelites was broken in the Exodus, freeing them up to serve the Lord instead, well, sin's claim and power over us has been broken, freeing us up to serve the Lord instead. We have a new master. And of course, the language of, of a lamb without spot or blemish. Well, that's from the Exodus as well. When the firstborn of Israel were spared because of the spilt blood of the Passover lambs. Each lamb was a male a year old without blemish. Exodus 12.5 But the price paid for our ransom was not the blood of an animal. The price paid for our ransom was not silver and gold deposited in some pagan temple somewhere. No, the price paid for our ransom was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Precious doesn't mean cute and sweet the way we use it. It means priceless. Beyond all price. I often think of the end of the movie, uh, Saving Private Ryan, when I, when I read this verse in 1 Peter chapter 1 about the price that was paid for our salvation. At the end of that movie, if you've seen it, you'll remember uh, the elderly Private Ryan stands at the grave of one of the men who died on the mission to save him. And this elderly man turns to his wife and says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. As he contemplates the, the price of his salvation. Well, how much more costly was your salvation, Christian? Peter is calling us to live in light of that great, precious ransom price. For Christ, verse 20, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, rooted in the resurrection. What does it mean that He was foreknown before the foundation of the world? The Son, just as the Father and the Spirit, is eternal. So, of course, the Father knew the Son before the world was made. But that's, that's not what Peter's saying. 
Peter's saying that the Son of God was foreknown as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sins, before there ever was any sinner in need of salvation. The Apostle John, he, he speaks about this at the very end of the Bible. Multiple times in the book of Revelation, Revelation 13, 8, he speaks of our names having been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Your name was written before the foundation of the world, before there was any life, in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Peter and John and the rest of the New Testament, they're telling us that the, the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Son as a sacrifice for sins, that was not some plan B. It's not like God the Father found Adam and Eve naked and ashamed in the garden. He said, uh-oh, what now? And after thinking about it, he, he goes and tries to have this difficult conversation with the son, saying, hey, son, I have an idea. I'm not sure you're going to like it. No, all of this, all of this salvation was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That is how precious the gift is, Peter's saying. So receive this gift of salvation with seriousness. Receive it with due soberness. Receive it with due reverence and fear. Get your head up. And grow up as you are freed up to serve the Lord, ready for action, reporting for duty each day until the day that He calls you to your eternal home. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word to us. Or let Your Word this morning penetrate our hearts, that we may no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, enslaved by the passions of our former ignorance, following the futile, useless ways of this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may know and joyfully obey your will for our lives. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.